0: Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Turn to Genesis chapter 38, where Tamar's story is told, which is not your typical Christmas story. This isn't one that's going to be turned in anytime soon into the next Christmas pageant, but it is a story that helps us understand further the story of Christ. So again, turn with me, if you have a Bible, to Genesis chapter 38. And we're going to walk through this as we go. But before we dive in, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word to remember the birth of your son and all that he accomplished on our behalf, I pray that we would, through the the brokenness of his family tree, all the more appreciate your faithfulness to work all things for the good of your people. Indeed, for the good of all those who place their faith in your Son. And for the increase of your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but at least in my experience, there's nothing quite like the holidays to bring out some good old-fashioned family drama. You know what I'm talking about? And that's true whether you like your family or not. Take a a group of people who've known each other for an extended period of time, who've lived through the good, the bad, and the ugly, who who know how to push each other's buttons and who in the worst cases spend the rest of the year just avoiding each other. You take those and you you put them in, in one concentrated place for one concentrated period of time and there's nothing quite like it to stir up some family drama. Sooner or later, the drama unfolds. Do you know what I'm talking about? We just passed through Thanksgiving. Many of you know firsthand from recent experiences what I'm talking about. Hopefully yours isn't that bad, but it can get pretty bad. It can get pretty bad, like save your money, skip the movie, get the popcorn, kind of bad, right? Like just huddle around, Jamie's running off to her room crying, Johnny's locking himself in the bathroom, kind of bad, right? There's nothing quite like the holidays to bring out that good old family drama. Whether your family is headline worthy of like the Huff Post, that is, seems to be printing these stories all over the place. Or whether your family is a little more like mine, where nobody actually has a criminal record besides some speeding tickets, but you put us down, and, and if it's not during the meal, afterwards when we sit down to, to, to play one of those family games, it's like you sat down with Capone. <laughs> or like, you know, who? Babyface Nelson, right? These guys. It, it just, the whole thing turns. And I imagine that at least in a little way, if not in a big way, you know what I'm talking about. But the family drama that any of us have experienced, I'd venture to say, does not live up to the family drama we're going to read about today. The family drama that litters Jesus' family tree. And and I want to just say on the front end of this that today we're going to be diving into what arguably was the darkest hour in that family's history with some pretty frank, rather explicit references to all that was going wrong. And I'm going to, as best as I can, dance around that for the good of the younger children in our body. But I want to say that looking back at the darkest hour of that family tree is going to really help us appreciate when that tree finally bears the fruit of Jesus Christ. And so we're, we're going to jump in, but before we turn to that darkest hour, just like in your own family history, it's sometimes helpful to have a little bit of the backstory, to pull some of those family videos off the shelf, dust them off a bit, slip them into the VHS player if you still have one, and just catch up on how this all got to where we got today, right? Right? So we're going to do that, and I just want to dust off at least three of these little videos. The first one is a video entitled, Abraham. And this video is rather old, it's rather dated at this point, the videography wasn't all that good, but it tells a very important part of this family's history, of a man who's taking this video on the road, leaving his country because he was just called to be the guy through whom God was going to fix the world that it was going to be through his line that God made right all that we made wrong. And and this video is rather monotonous as they travel from their home country all the way to another land. When they get there, though, the video gets a little more interesting because family dinners include not just this guy who's rather aged at the time, not just this guy's wife who is just as wrinkly herself, but also a servant girl who from time to time pops into the frame and you begin to see is pregnant, which makes for some very awkward family meals because you get the impression eventually, oh, this is actually abraham's kid you can imagine the family drama that surrounded this little to do that here was a guy who was promised that through his family all the families of the earth would be blessed but having no family just him and his elderly wife takes it upon himself to to make that happen with his wife's servant girl and it's not real pretty. Family drama is all the way back to this dusty old video of Abraham. The next video, though, that you take off the, 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 the shelf is of Abraham's grandson. It's labeled Jacob. And things aren't much better for Jacob. You see, this video is all about how this guy named Jacob is a trickster. From the very beginning, from the time he's in the womb, he's up to his tricks. But when he gets out, it only gets worse. He actually has a clip in this little video of him tricking his brother out of his birthright. Eventually tricking his father when his father is then aged. Out of the blessing that his brother should have deserved, though You hear along the way that God had said differently, and yet this trickster Jacob ends up with both by his trickery. And one of the last scenes in this tape as it rolls off the end is Jacob fleeing the country because the family drama is so bad. The next tape picks up and it just actually continues on. The story of Jacob as he moves from as a a young kid tricking his brother, tricking his nearly blind father, moves in then to his time in a foreign country where he ends up being tricked himself. And he's taken advantage of by his tricky uncle who gets him to marry his daughter, but it's the wrong one. And so rather than staying and just da- ma- taking the, as best he could, he ends up working another seven years, which is one of these very, these very slow um, progressions through. You see this very um, high-paced uh, in, into the next seven years. He marries the sister as well. But you want to talk about drama, right? <laughs> I mean, it's one thing to have a wife and her servant girl, two sisters, I can imagine. But there he is, and things only get worse as they start to have kids. They add to the equation. Not just the two sisters, but now they're servant girls. And things are getting bad for this family. And you wonder, this isn't it? This isn't the darkest moment? Turns out the tail end of that video brings us all the way up to Genesis 37, the chapter before what we're going to look at today, tells and shows on this video of how this guy named Jacob, of his 12 eventual sons, his one daughter, he actually has a favorite. A guy by the name of Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat prancing around the video as it reels off. And you get the impression, wow, things are not right in this family. If you know the story of Joseph, you know that, that when he grows up a little bit, his brothers, uh, him being the most liked by his father makes him the most disliked by his kin. And so they take him and throw him in a pit. And they Their plan is to kill him. That's the best in the moment that they can come up with. But eventually, one of the brothers comes up with a better idea. Which brother? Simeon tries to to have a back. The oldest brother tries to have a a back-end plan. He's actually going to try and save Joseph. But it's Judah, a guy by the name of Judah that actually comes up with a plan that rather than kill him and benefit ourselves nothing, let's sell him into slavery and pocket the money. And dear old dad won't know any different. And he leads his brothers through this scheme, selling Joseph into slavery in Egypt While they go home and take his technicolor dream coat with them, slaughter a goat, much like their father had slaughtered a goat many days before when he tricked his own dad. They slaughter a goat, put blood on the coat, and say, Dad, identify this, whose it is, and if it's your son's. And this is where our story picks up this season. Chapter 38, follow along with me as we jump in. For Judah, things from that moment of selling his brother into slavery only seem to have gotten worse. It's life at its darkest hour, but remember, it's at these moments on which Dawn breaks brightest, which is where this story is headed, even though we've got to go darker still. Look at uh, Genesis 38, verse 1. Genesis 38, verse 1 tells us that it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brother's. His brother Joseph going down to Egypt, his, his father very particularly said to be left down in the depths of despair at the end of chapter 37. Now, now Judah is said to go down from his brothers and, and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira, who's sort of like Judah's drinking buddy. His frat brother, who he, he keeps on the, the side of life and doesn't really let into this whole promise thing that he's a part of God's plan somehow to, to make all the wrongs of this world right again. Hira's sort of his drinking buddy. Maybe telling himself, Judah, maybe telling himself that, that this frat brother of his is, is, is part of that mission or part of that mission field, but really he's only on one mission, right? To please his own pleasures. Pretty much sums up then what happens next, verse 2, that there Judah, away from his brothers, away from his family, saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, which was, was bad news, not because she was from a different country. That's not what the problem was, but that she was serving different gods, and that she wouldn't have been serving the one true God. He sees this certain, this certain Canaanite whose name, uh, the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And Judah takes her, it says, and went into her and she conceives and bears a son and he calls his name Ur. This is pretty much the name you should have given something like this. Er. It says she conceived again and and bore a son and and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son and she called his name Shelah. Apparently, they ran out of every other name. So they called this son Shelah. And it says Judah was in Kazib when she bore him. We're told in verse six that after some years, Judah took a wife, right? His kids grow up, takes a wife for Ur, his firstborn. And here it is. The name of that wife was Tamar. This is the girl that ends up in Jesus' genealogy. This is her entrance onto the stage. It's important to see, though, that she's not in Jesus' genealogy because she's the wife of Ur. Because listen, it says in verse 7, Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. This is our Christmas story for today. That that (laughs) her was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Which is important for Christmas. Jesus came to save, but wickedness leads to death. And Jesus isn't just some celestial ice cream man waiting to take your quarter, give you your order. He's just looking to please you. God puts him to death because you want to play with that kind of economy with God. An I pay, you give, I get what I deserve. Er is the picture. You sooner or later end up like this guy. Or like his brother, Onan. To whom, Judah says in verse 8, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother, which was how it worked back then. An older brother took respons- died and a younger brother then took responsibility for, for caring for that woman, for raising up with her children to perpetuate the name, right? The family name. But Onan, it says, knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, it says that he would take all the benefits and none of the responsibility. And God sees this as bad as whatever the wickedness was of his brother. Same outcome. Same wickedness. All the benefits with none of the responsibilities. And God kills ON too. This is our Christmas story. That if that's the economy you want to play with, that's what ended us up in this place in the first place. That you want to do things according to your ways. Your rules. And this is the end. That we're left in death. And God may even take your life because of it. And God will eventually take all lives because of it. I just want to say as an aside. Especially for those who are not married yet. Especially for you Girls who are not married yet. And grow up looking for a prince charming, right? Looking for someone to sweep you off your feet, defend you from dragons. If a guy wants all the benefits without taking the responsibility, he's not doing it for you. Thank God the Christmas story reads different than that. And if you're one of those guys... Or doing this in some way as a girl. This is the end. You travel that road long enough. And life gets cut short. The story though isn't really about Ur or Onan. It's about their father Judah. So we... Pick up the story in verse 11. Judah, who who says in verse 11 to Tamar's his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. Why? Because it says Judah feared that Shelah would die like his brothers. That the sins of the sons were actually rooted in the sin of their father. That he feared that that his one last child would would die as well. Not, Not that he had any intention of actually giving him to Tamar. Because Judah assumed that Tamar was the common denominator, not the wickedness of his sons. He he didn't even have the ability to see that it was the the darkness of his own life that had leaked in and become the darkness of the lives of his sons. That his plan is now just spare the other one and get rid of the woman. So it says Tamar, probably not thinking anything of it or being able to do anything for it, went to her father's house and remained there, bound to Judah's family because she's still bound to Judas' youngest, Judah's youngest son, though without hope of having him, and therefore without hope of having anything. If you think your family drama is something, look at this. It's nothing like the family drama woven into the family tree of Jesus. But remember, it's life at its darkest on which dawn breaks brightest, which, which begins to break for this family when one seemingly insignificant member of that family, the, the outsider who is no doubt the, the least likely, most vulnerable at this point, When she reflects in her faithfulness, God's faithfulness to this family. And this is the way I think we're meant to read this. I understand there is a lot here to digest. A lot that that strikes you as, what? But I think this is the way we're meant to read this. See, Tamar could have walked away. She would have arguably had every right to walk away because Judah had functionally walked away from her, had left her without a husband and without the hope of a future. But instead, look at this, instead of walking away, we read something very different. We read that eventually Judah's wife dies and and, and then after he recovers, he goes with his drinking buddy, Hira, to, to what for all intents and purposes was Mardi Gras. It was a celebration. You get these shepherds, they're out in the fields, they're doing their own thing. You bring them together once a year to, to shear the sheep, and a lot of other stuff happens too. So they're coming together. He's on his road, the road with his drinking buddy, and, and, and Tamar gets wind of it. But look what she does. Tamar gets wind of it, and we're told takes off her widow's garments that apparently she's still wearing after all these years. Takes off her widow's garments and instead wraps herself in a veil and covers her face and goes to meet Judah on the road to Timnah. Why? Well, the one explicit thing is, that it says is that she saw, we're told, that shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage that judah wasn't going to follow through he wasn't going to do what judah was supposed to do and judah sees her on the road out of her women's her widow's garments out of maybe all her garments and he takes for her for a prostitute. And he propositions her. Verse 16, he turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. He's got a thing for goats. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand." Which is sort of like Judah handing over his, his driver's license and his credit card. Desperate times call for desperate measures, so he does. After which... After which, Tamar gets up and returns to her father's house. What does she do? She puts back on her widow's clothes and finds herself with child. This is the light. This is the light. Judah eventually sends his drinking buddy, Hira, with the goat to retrieve his I.D., his credit card, but who is unable to find the woman. So they decide for the sake of Judah's reputation, which was obviously so important to both of them, that They decide that they're going to let the matter lie. That they tried due diligence to, to, to settle all, all bets, to, to, to pay off all, all, uh, all, all the deeds. They tried as best they could, but, but for the sake of reputation, they're going to let it lie. About three months later, though, it says in verse 24, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And forget his own guilt in precisely this area. Judah nonetheless simply says what? Bring her out and let her be burned. Bring her out and let her be burned. And and I just want to point out, this is just slightly above What God would have demanded. God demanded death for those who commit adultery, for those who are found in adulterous relationships. But it was death by stoning, which was typically, although I don't think it's a pleasant experience, it's typically a fast experience. You get hit on the head with a stone and you're dead. This is slightly more drastic than even God demands. Set her on fire. And I just want to point out that that's, isn't that how we usually are? If we're guilty of something, trying to hide something, we're the ones who get so much more bent out of shape about those same things. So much less gracious, so much less room for any sense that God would ever have any ability to forgive those things. This is what's happening with Judah. Take her out, bring her, and burn her. says, though, verse 25, as she was being brought out, Tamar sent word to her father-in-law by the man to whom these things belong, I am pregnant. And she said, using the same language that, that he had instigated a chapter before, using for his brother Joseph, he uses the same language, please identify it, whose these are, in this case, the signet ring and the cord and the staff. And listen to Judah's response in verse 26. This is perhaps the most, the, the most important verse in the whole chapter. When once again the trickster finds himself tricked and says, and Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son Sheila. I wouldn't give her my son. I'd give her all these other trinkets that that merely that merely suggest my my selfishness. But I wouldn't, as her father-in-law, as the one who who was her protection, her provider, as the one after her her husband died, the one who should have been taking care of her, I'd give her these things. But would not give her my son. She is more righteous than I. Not because we want our our girls playing the prostitute in these ways, not because we want to force people into these places. Nor do we want our our women having to force the hands of the men who are supposed to be, again, protecting them and providing for them. But more righteous, because what we want are those who reflect in their faithfulness to others, God's faithfulness to them. Even when those others are unwilling to be faithful themselves. Because this is not a story about a girl, as much as it's painted sometimes as that, not a story about a girl who would have given herself to anyone. She simply put herself in the path of the one guy who was supposed to be taking care of her. It's clear that that she hears Judah is going up and she takes off. She, she, She plays that role because it's him. Not just playing it with anyone, but this is a story about a girl who was bound to this someone. To him. Even more, to his family. Even more, to his family line. Through whom God had promised that one day he would send someone to again right all wrong. Wow, life is messed up if this is the bright spot in the story. But thank God for the faithfulness of a woman named Tamar who instead of running back to her culture or even being one to, to take the family line through whom God was meant to work and drag that into her culture Instead, in a backwards dart, I understand that kind of way, still committed herself to God and God's people. Thank God for a faithfulness like that. And because of Tamar's extraordinary commitment to this foreign people and this foreign God, her faithfulness at life's darkest moment is when God's faithfulness begins to break brightest. In the midst of the story of Joseph, this chapter seems like an interruption. The verses that that close the chapter out Seems so insignificant. But do not underestimate their importance. Look at verse 27. That when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But he drew the hand back in somehow. Somehow. Behold, his brother came out instead and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez, which sounds like the Hebrew word for breach. Afterward, his brother came out and the scarlet thread was on his hand and his name was called Zerah. These verses are are significant because once again to this family that was at this point spinning out of control to this family, is once again born a set of twins. Do you remember the last time it happened? A set of twins which not only restores the two sons that Judah had lost due to their wickedness, but also resets, in a way, the family line. Because just like with Father Jacob, of these two twins, the older, Zerah, would, in a way, serve the younger, Perez. To whom another child would be born and another and another until ten generations later would finally be born a promised king. A king who, who, who also happened to be a youngest child. Selected though not by man, but by God. To whom eventually would be born the king of kings. When nobody would have chose that one. When at life's darkest a dawn would break brightest once for all. A child is born to Tamar, looking forward to a child born to Mary. Let me encourage you, though, from this story, even in this holiday season in two ways. Let me encourage you first that no matter how dark your family drama is, no matter how complicated, how out of control, you can be the one used by God to set it straight. It can't get more out of control, more complicated than this. I don't think it's legally allowed anymore. I don't know if we could imagine up a scenario more complicated than this. But all it took was one outsider who devoted herself in faithfulness to God and God's people and God's promised line. And this became the turning point. Ten generations between Tamar and David. A complete turnaround from where it was. All because of one outsider who committed herself to God and God's people and God's promised line. And you can do that. This holiday season, when the drama hits its height to be the one person who's going to react differently than everyone else. Who reacts rather in faithfulness than the infidelity that just wreaks our world. Let me encourage you, you can be the one to set it straight. Let me also encourage you, though, that when it comes to God's big family, You don't need to be that one. You don't need to be that one because one came to do it even better than Tamar. One came and did it way better than Judah. One came to do it better than Joseph, his brother. That while Judah was running towards the women, Joseph was running away. That the things that that, that that stood as evidence against Judah, Joseph only had things that wrongly incriminated him. That while Judah was going down away out of his own sinful desires, Joseph was coming back and wanting to come back, and yet Jesus did it even better. You can be the one for your family. You don't have to be the one for God's. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, not your typical Christmas story, but I pray as we look these weeks at some of the low and some of the high points of that family tree that we would See Jesus all the more. Long for Jesus all the more. Wait for Jesus all the more. Celebrating on the the 25th, His first coming, but I pray even now that we would look beyond that and look forward to the second. I pray as we continue in the brokenness and darkness of our world, we would look forward to the day Dawn will break bright again. And we will know you and know your son for who he is and who he came to be. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H bible.org.